They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Episode 6 of the Juan on Juan podcast. I'm your host Juan. I just got done talking to Brian Forrester and he is a real life Indiana Jones. This guy goes around the world seeing all these megalithic structures uh, that show evidence of ancient technology and it's one of the subjects that interests me the most because a lot of people don't look into they don't question where we come from that's been one of the main questions of uh, of all time where did we come from and we're left with all these pieces of the puzzle that we have to in essence put together and when you have a puzzle and there's missing pieces it's not going to make a lot of sense so what we're seeing and what we're interpreting is is it, it doesn't make sense on, on some some on some parts for example the pyramids of giza you know how these people were able to create these magnificent structures you know they talk about how the egyptians didn't even make them some somebody before them uh constructed them what were they constructed for some people say they were a power plant of some sort nikola tesla and uh in specific was obsessed with the pyramids he said it was it was a that they harnessed energy from from the earth and again nikola tesla died abruptly and conspiracy or not maybe they didn't want him finding out what what he knew because uh, again the energy energy is a business and if we figure out how to harness it without needing the the you know the government or whoever involved that's a bad thing because they can't make money off of it so there's evidence of all these different 
uh, ancient sites, me uh, megalithic structures, and it just really, it's a wormhole. The more you look into it, the more questions you have. And Brian is a guy who's traveled all over the world, more than 90 countries. He's written numerous, numerous books. He's been on uh, various shows to talk about his work. And he's even uh, studied elongated skulls. And some of the DNA from those from those skulls, from those uh, skeletal remains, not human. Um, you know, they can't trace it to anything. And it just, it, it blows my mind. And the more I look into it again, the more questions I have. And I'm really fortunate I got to talk to somebody who's, uh, an expert in this field who's who's actually seen these places firsthand because a lot of people don't understand the sheer size of these places uh, for example the pyramid of giza 2.3 to 2.5 million stones and the mainstream archaeology says that they were the mainstream academia says that they were built with uh hammers and bronze chisels I'm like, what for two and a half million stones, the the Pyramid of Giza is has got a footprint of thirteen acres. But not not just that, but the position that they were that they were positioned, you know, it's three sixtieths off of of true north, three sixtieths of a degree off true north. It's it's amazing what these people could do back then, and if they we we speculate, everybody talks aliens. Brian is a the type of guy who is a cold hard evidence type of guy factual stuff no speculation this is what the evidence is pointing to and this is what we think happened so really appreciate brian taking the time to speak to me and i got to ask him a few questions that that i, I personally had and we uh discussed some of these ancient sites some of these ancient techno technologies that they had and what they mean so without further ado this is Ancient Technology with Brian Forrester. All right, so we're live. Brian, how are you doing today on this uh, Friday? Great. I'm here on the coast of uh, coast of Peru, location where the elongated skulls are, are found. Well, I thought you were in the States because <laughs> I'm on Eastern Standard no, no, Time I'm, as well. <clears throat> no, I, I live full time. I'm in Peru now. That's great. Um so I want to start off with a quote that's going to relate to what we're going to be talking about. Uh, those who control the present control the past, and those who control the past control the future. George Orwell. Um, before we get started, for the people who want to look into your work, I know you've written numerous books, done lectures, you have a YouTube channel, you have social media. What are those uh, forms of social media you have that the people can find you on and uh, look more into your work if they want to? Okay, well, actually, the best location is my website, which is hiddenincatours.com. And there are links there to my YouTube channel um, and also my Facebook and Twitter and um, all the other ones as well. So that, that's the best resource, and almost everything on that site is actually free content. Awesome. And I know you do tours as well. I've been talking to my fiance about going over to Egypt. That's one of the places I want to visit before I before I die, because it's so amazing over there. So I, I just might oh, do a oh, tour with you. Who knows? <laughs> Great. Um, so this is a question I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. I feel we don't get it enough. 
Um, it really makes you look into yourself. But who is Brian Forrester? Well, I'm a, a guy that was born in the U.S. and grew up in Canada. Uh, I have a science background. I have a, a Bachelor of Science degree, so that makes me a scientific researcher. I've been fascinated by ancient enigmas all of my life. I've traveled to about 100 countries, and presently my focus is on uh, evidence of lost ancient high technology and also the elongated skull phenomenon. Again, taking it from a scientific approach, and I found that most of the academic research, uh, standard academic research, is very uh, incorrect or very narrow in, ter in terms of its focus. They tend to dodge questions about uh, the evidence of lost ancient high technology. So my job is to go to these different locations and make videos and write books about the subjects to waken up uh, the general public about the fact that we've been lied to as regards our history. I agree. There, there are a lot of, you know, what you call, would call mainstream ideas that are just when you look at the evidence and i know you're a factual guy you look at the hardcore you know the cold stone evidence literally um and you analyze it and a lot of things the evidence is saying uh doesn't correlate with what they're saying and another thing that you do that i respect is you go to the the people there you know from from those countries those sites whatever and, and you uh listen to their their oral traditions or whatever that may be and you get a, a, a an account directly from the people, which I feel that these other, uh, uh, you know, people in academia they don't they, they assume for them. Um, so uh, you told me what sparked your interest in these ancient civilizations exactly, and, and when did you begin? Did you just get up one day and say I'm gonna explore the world? Because you're almost like an Indiana Jones. You you travel the world and you look at all these amazing places. Um, How'd you get started exactly? Well, when I was a kid, I was fascinated by enigmatic things that didn't make sense. Like, for example, probably the first thing was the Sphinx in Egypt, just the size of it, <clears throat> the scale of it, the complexity of it. Um, and then other sites like Stonehenge. And I, I felt it was important and is important to physically go to these places because there are a lot of videos on YouTube that people make about, for example, you know, ancient mysteries, and they take pictures from the internet, but have never actually been on location. And you can only get certain, a very small fraction of information from photos themselves. But if you're on location, then you have the uh, the chance to walk around the sites, interact with um, local experts. You can hear the standard academic story, but then there's always somebody or a number of people who live in these locations that still carry the ancient secret knowledge, and they're the important ones to uh, to find and, and talk with. And, and as well, because we do our tours, we always wind up with geologists and engineers and people like that, and interacting with them on location opens up the scope of study in a really profound way. I agree. There, there's, and like you, you touched on it, you, I don't believe people understand just the the size of these places. One of my favorite videos that you have is you're standing in front of the Pyramid of Giza and you're looking at some of the tool markings on some of the stones, and you pan out 
and you're just like a little ant in front of that pyramid and I don't you know there's 2.3 to 2.5 million stones on that pyramid it's like it's amazing and people don't question this is like why did you know why did we why did they do that what was its main purpose and I don't feel that we'll ever know because the more you look into it, it's almost a wormhole the more questions you have uh you know the the deeper you look into it um out of all the places yeah, that's, uh, no sorry go ahead no no go ahead i have a next i'm gonna ask you a, a question after that okay well yeah that's you know that that's the whole point when you um when you go to egypt and you leave the airport and you drive through Cairo and then you are entering Giza because Giza is actually a separate city. It's not just the Giza Plateau. It's a, it's a whole city of at least a million people. You can see the three great pyramids at Giza uh, from at least 10 miles away. Wow. They, um, they, make, they, they make the big apartment buildings in Giza look small in comparison. And then when you're actually on the plateau and, and you're walking up to the pyramid, it's 500 feet tall. And as you said, between 2.3 and 2.5 million multi-ton blocks. And recent evidence has shown that a lot of the limestone that the pyramid is made from isn't from the Giza plateau, but from a quarry across the Nile. So not only did they have to quarry the stone in the Cairo area, but they had to every one of those stones had to cross the Nile as well. And that makes it uh, even more complicated than what most people understand. Yeah, the Aswan Quarry is, is, what, 500 miles away from the pyramids? Yeah, that, that's the source of the granite. But the source of the limestone is actually uh, in an area called uh, Tura. And that's, that's where the casing stone and actually most of the core of the Great Pyramid, according to recent geological studies, have found out that... Um, most of the stone wasn't quarried at Giza, but actually in Cairo. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know about that. I thought, uh, you know, Giza was just a place to call in Cairo. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, just the, the and not only that, but I, I have a background in CNC and, uh, you know, I know about feeds and speeds and and I can I know about precision when it comes to, to working with metals and what it takes. But with computers uh when you think of technology you think computers cell phones you know electronics what is ancient technology for people who are wondering because this term is used a lot what is it exactly to you well for example again since we're discussing egypt um the dynastic people had copper chisels and to some degree bronze chisels and that's a very inefficient way of cutting stone. And so there's a, a major distinction between dynastic work, which is in sandstone and limestone, which are both relatively soft stones that can be shaped by chisels, but not efficiently. But then you have a lot of work that was done in granite and basalt and quartzite, which are much, much harder uh, materials. And you can't shape those stones or types of stones with bronze chisels. So we see evidence of incredibly flat surfaces, uh, giant boxes in the Serapium at Saqqara, for example, there are 24 of them that weigh 100 tons apiece. The stone, uh, which is granite, likely came from Aswan, which is about 500 miles away. And so it's the precision of the workmanship and the great distances that the stone was moved from that shows us uh, that the dynastic people 
inherited these things. They didn't create them. Yeah, and that that's what blows my mind because it, everything that was written is just blown out of the water. It's not it doesn't make sense if indeed this is what the evidence is saying because i've i've watched her videos there's evidence of saws what 14 feet big you know wide cutting stone uh and and just this the sheer size of the operation and i wish that i could go back in time and and go and visit the pyramids when they were you know when they had that new pyramid smell on them and just you know when they were just freshly done to see what they were really built for and it, what people don't realize, it's, it's not just, you know, it's got a footprint of 13 acres. 13 acres is massive. Uh, it's the precision and the alignments of everything. This is, a work, this is a work of art, and they got it right the first time around. And not only that, but the top of the pyramid is amazing, but people don't see the sheer, uh, uh, the, the, the amazing feats that they did underground as well. You know, there's there's a system of tunnels underground, which is also a big feat for those people. And, and again, another amazing piece of of work. And I, you know, I a lot of people associate it and you can think of it as any way you want. You know, they think uh, you're talking about how the dynastic people found this already there. Um, a lot of people say, well, who was there before them? Uh People associated with aliens, extraterrestrials, uh, different entities, whatever it may be. But who do you think passed down this 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 knowledge, this information? Uh, who do you who, who do you think built the pyramids? If it wasn't the dynastic people, and and what happened to these people that were that predated them? Like, you know, there's so many questions, and there's so many uncovered uh, sites in Egypt under the sand. Is, is that correct? Yeah, well, actually, it's it's not a question. Um, even Zahi Hawass, who was the <clears throat> the head of the Supreme Council of Antiquities, admitted that at least 85% of uh, ancient Egypt is underground. But it, it doesn't mean that it's actually in this under the sand. It means it's in the bedrock itself, and wow. that's what makes it even even more incredible. So people think, well, well, if if we dig down into the sand will discover temples. It's, it's not that. It's that um, a lot of what um, still is to be revealed to the public is that there are so many tunnels and chambers and shafts that are underground that, again, had to have been done using advanced technology, not with um, you know chisels and hammers and things like that. The best example of it is a recently open to the public um, location on the plateau, which is called the Osiris Shaft. And two years ago, it was open to the public. So our tour group was able to rent it for two hours. And then this year we did it again. And in, or last year we did it again. And in March, we'll do it again. And it's absolutely incredible because um, you walk um, horizontally um, into the bedrock and then you go down a ladder that takes you 30, about 30 feet down into a big chamber, or a relatively big chamber, and then you walk forward, and then there's another ladder that takes you down another 100 feet into the bedrock, where there are six niches with two giant uh, stone boxes located, and then you look down again, and there's another ladder that takes you down 60 feet into the um, into a big pool of water. So you're able to go 
200 feet vertically into the bedrock. And the fact that they actually opened that up to the public is quite amazing. But the great thing is that the new head of antiquities is opening up places that previously were prohibited to the public. And so slowly ancient Egypt is revealing itself to us. And that's why it's important to go and film this stuff because they could seal them off at any time. But since I've been able to do the Osiris shaft twice so far, and of course they're on my YouTube channel, then people can see the obvious evidence of very advanced machining technology that had to have existed prior to the time of the dynastic people. Yeah, and we go back to that quote, those who control the past control the future. It's like, what are they, what do they not want us to see? Uh, and it's amazing. I didn't know that that 85% is still actually embedded in in, in the rock. And it, it mm -hmm. just it's unfortunate that because the answers that we might be looking for might be there this whole time, but not until they actually go in and uncover it, what we really know. Um, and, and it's it's a lot of, uh, I don't understand the pushback because it's important that we learn our history and, and it's been one of the, it, 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 in human nature to question everything. And as far as the origins of life and, and, and you know, mankind uh, itself, uh, that's always been a question of big debate. And, Again, there's so many theories behind what the pyramids were originally used for. Uh, one of the things that that you know boggles my mind is it, it's it's I, I don't understand how they want us to comprehend that these people built a 200 foot shaft into the ground with with bronze age tools, you know, just chiseling away. It's like, come on, it, are you really gonna believe that? And a lot of people do because they they. They take in whatever the mainstream, whatever is feeding them, and they take it for whatever it's worth, and, and they believe it 100%. You have those type of people in this world and in society. And that's unfortunate because I believe that everybody should expand their mind and, and, and question everything. You know, because something that I can't prove myself, I'm going to question it. You know, either when it comes to politics, science, whatever it is, you know, I, I, I like astronomy, I have telescopes. I look into the sky and I have a problem with with NASA telling me that, you know, one light year is seven trillion miles. I can't even begin to comprehend that because it's it's such a large number. And how did they even begin to comprehend that? You know what I mean? So it's a lot of these things. Um, and we're just we're we can only see what what is given to us and what we're allowed to to see. Um I know there's been evidence and you've posted it on your your YouTube channel uh, that you've found these different tools. I know you've found chisels and stuff and stuff like that, but those discs that you found, has there been any further studies into those? Uh, I forgot the name of them. It's the the gray discs that they don't even know what it's for. Oh, the, yeah, the schist disc. Yeah, that, that's amazing. It's yeah, like, it's, what, it, what is well, that? It's well, that's, that's, again, one of the big questions. Some people obviously think that it's part of a machine, that the disc rotated, it has three blades, and that the blades were meant for either pushing or pulling water or air, but nobody really knows. But the amazing thing is that it was found with a, a cache of between 30,000 and 40,000 hard stone-turned bowls. That had to have, and plates that had to have been made on lathes, 
And um, the great thing is that the, uh, the people in the museum make mistakes, which is something I love to record uh, on video. So even they state that, that those are, are pre-dynastic. And so wow. you know, the dynastic period, dynastic period goes back about 5,000 years. And so if, if saying pre-dynastic, then you're, what you're saying is that they were made at a time before the invention of the potter's wheel. So they had to have been lathes, they had to have been high-speed lathes, they had to have been, um, you know, obviously a, a lathe is a machine, so it has to have a motor of some kind, and then probably at least diamond-cutting tools, and diamond tools were not invented until the 1860s AD. So even they may, you know, they give us the clue by making the mistake by putting pre-dynastic on them. Um, and they haven't corrected that so far. So um, another example is outside the main museum in Cairo. <clears throat> there are several objects, but there's there's one very crudely made sarcophagus. It's human-sized, very roughly made out of granite, uh, very coarse surface. And so you can tell that that was done with hand tools. And then there's another one right next to it on the left-hand side. It weighs probably 40 tons. Very, very large. The lid and the box are made from the same piece of, of granite, and the, the precision of the surfaces is super flat. Um, and um, they they list that as being older than the simpler one on the right-hand side. So again, it's a mistake they make, and that's uh, something that I I love catching them on. And uh, I, I've seen some of your videos where some of the statues it looks almost like like milling marks uh you know spaced out evenly and again the curvature everything is so smoothly it's like did they really have uh something that we don't know about today and just the the sheer size of these uh obelisks or whatever that you find these stones you know it's hundreds and hundreds of tons you know uh, 80 tons 100 tons 200 tons whatever it is it, it's uh, when they were transporting the thunderstone that's in St. Petersburg, that was, I, I think it was like six miles or something like that. And it was this engineering feat. And it took uh, all this amount of money. They had to build roads for it, railroads. And it's like we did that with, you know, they did that in, in, in uh, fairly modern times. And I'm in the logistics industry as well. So I know what it takes to move heavy machinery around. And I can't imagine these people, what they used logs some of the logs would be crushed from from just the weight alone of these stones and coming from hundreds of miles away you know uh, at times um it's amazing and and again people don't even question this it's like oh well, it's just it's just uh it's just a pyramid it's just a bunch of rocks yeah well you know it's it's, it's there's more to it than that and that's that's what you know intrigues me and just wants to make me dig deeper um, what do you think the, yeah, well, 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 actually, if I can just add, add a little bit to that, um, another example are what are called the Colossi of Memnon located near, uh, Luxor, you know, which is kind of central Egypt. And there are two giant seated figures. The one on the right was repaired during Roman times very sloppily, but the one on the left is actually still one piece of stone on top of a giant base and the seated figure on the left hand side weighs about 720 tons the quarry is 400 miles away 
And as you said, you ask, well, how did they transport this stone 400 miles? And they say, well, they built a raft. It's like, out of what? Uh, out of cedars of, of, of Lebanon. Well, that's, you know, that's getting wood from a thousand miles away. All of it, you know, all you have to do is ask very simple questions. And uh, they always have to have an answer, but the answer is almost always comical because they can't explain it. Uh, another example is, is the uh, again, the question of how would they shape granite with bronze chisels? And uh, Chris Dunn, who's our uh, master machinist, um, he was the first one to basically catch in uh, with this stuff because being a machinist and working with CNC machines and lasers and things like that, he, uh, about 10, 15 years ago, he was on a number of different TV shows and he brought with him a bronze chisel and a piece of, of granite and he would strike the piece of granite once with the bronze chisel and it would automatically dent wow. the, the tooth at the, <laughs> at the front. And he said, okay, so how do you explain that? And when the Egyptologists found out about that, they said, well, they had a, a row of people sharpening the chisel so they would have a thousand chisels in a line for them to use again it's Come a very on. comical answer to a very simple question for for two and a half million stones or whatever they're gonna have again the the sheer operation that it would have taken and it's it's mind-blowing and that that's hilarious that they that they expect us to believe that and it again it's just like you know if you're having a discussion with somebody and, and they want to prove their point Sometimes what they might say is, you know, something ridiculous, and you just you just sometimes have to agree to disagree. But again, the evidence says something else, and I know you've mm -hmm. dedicated most of your life to studying this, and, and that's awesome. Um, what do you think was the original intention of the pyramids? Uh, because, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm learning from you, and I'm learning all about. I'm I'm new to all this as well. I I, I do in-depth research to learn about it because. I have to learn the subject. If I'm going to have you on, I need to be able to ask the right questions and also have an understanding of the subject at hand. So I can't just invite mm -hmm. you on and be like, hey, uh, Brian, go ahead and do your thing. It's like I have to ask you the correct questions and I have to understand it. Um, from what I read, is it true that there has never been any uh, – they, they said that the pyramids were built as burial chambers, as a, as a, as a, you know, a big overdone burial place. Is it true that they've never found a, a mummy inside the pyramids? Yeah, that's that's true. They they haven't. I mean, obviously, what happened was because the Giza plateau is very complicated, and again, and there are so many chambers and tunnels and shafts carved into the bedrock. Uh, when the dynastic people arrived on the scene, they would use some of these chambers and tunnels and things like that for funerary purposes because they were already already made you know you're not going to carve out a, a tomb if there's already something you can use as a tomb so obviously that that's what they did uh but in the great pyramid no and also the other thing is that the the great pyramid system of which there are eight pyramids uh all very complicated all different shapes and and sizes um in in the in the general Giza area, they're the oldest and most complicated constructions. And then later on, you have much simpler constructions out of mud brick and stuff like that. Uh, and so that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That means that they were 
at their finest technologically, uh, technologically at the beginning and then went downhill. So that gives us another indication that clearly they, they discovered the pyramids and then they tried to emulate them. Uh, the standard story is that the step pyramid at Saqqara, which is quite famous, was the very first pyramid built and that was an experiment in order to, um, to see how to build a pyramid. And then after that came the Giza ones. But obviously what happened was the dynastic people tried to replicate the Great Pyramids uh, system by making the one at, uh, at the Step Pyramid at Saqqara, because it's quite simple in, in construction in comparison uh, to the Great Pyramids. And the great thing is that in March, we're going to be able to go underneath the Step Pyramid. It, it only opened up, I think, um, a couple of months ago, and there supposedly is a, a giant 10-story structure made of granite um, underneath the Saqqara uh, Step Pyramid. So that, again, Egypt is slowly revealing itself to us, and that's why it's great to go once a year to be able to record new stuff to show to people on my YouTube channel. Yeah, I look back at, and I think about when I was in elementary, and they talked about how the shafts were for the Pharaoh's spirit to go up into, into wherever they believe, in heaven, whatever. And you look at it, and I know Nikola Tesla was obsessed with the pyramids, and he believed that they were some sort of uh, power-harnessing uh, generators of that time because the way it was positioned um, on the you know longitude and latitude of the, the of the of the world um, is relevant, and that these people they knew how to harness energy from the world you know from the uh, I believe the stratosphere, um, and that they they tapped into this. But now we get into uh, one of the theories that you talk about a lot about this uh, cataclysm that happened. Uh, 12,000 years ago in your book Aftershock that you talk about this and there's evidence of it around these different sites. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that? And I know you were talking about, I don't know if it's the Pyramid of Saqqara where it looks like it's, it was almost exploded or what they say was just unfinished and that they quarried it, whatever it is, because again, they're always going to come, uh, you know, combat it with something and come back, you know, with a counter argument. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that cataclysm and the uh, tilting of the earth uh, by, what was it, 23 degrees, 23 and a half degrees, and some of these ancient sites that you found that are off by that amount? Yeah, well, actually, the best example or two best examples in Egypt <clears throat> with that um, would be a, a site in the Nile Delta, which is in the north. And that's called Tanis or Tanis, where you have huge megalithic structures that look like they were blown apart. And also, um, it's in a, uh, one of the major agricultural areas of Egypt. But Tanis is actually this relatively small hill, and there are only four plants that can grow on it. It's like the lunar surface, as if it's been scorched by massive heat. And then the other major site is around... Um, where, uh, Karnak, and there the, the central causeway at Karnak, um, at all major sites around the world in general, um, central causeways are east, west, or north, south, or both, 
and they're in relatively perfect alignment with north, south, east, and west, but Karnak is 23, about 23 degrees off. The same thing with the nearby Ramesseum as well. And so that, uh, obviously, that wasn't a mistake in terms of, of uh, construction orientation. It appears as if the, um, the axis of the Earth shifted. So we know that from 12,000, around 12,800 to 11,700 years ago, there were a massive series of cataclysms that struck the Earth. There are different theories as to what happened. Some people think it was a comet or comets. Some people think it was asteroids. Um, there are different theories about it, and that's why I wrote my book, Aftershock. Um, we also see evidence of intense heat scorching at Karnak, where the surface of the, uh, especially the granite stone, has basically been burnt or blown off the surface. And that's not from wind and sand. That's from intense heat. And that's backed up by our, our geologist, Susan, who comes with us on, on tour. We always have her on location to, to look at this stuff. So we also find some evidence of that in the highlands of Peru as well, ancient structures that supposedly are Inca, but are in fact pre-Inca. And they also show um, surfaces that appear to be melted or blown off. And so that's one of the major things I'm looking at is um, evidence of uh, the melting of stone surfaces or um, destruction of stone surfaces that had to have been done by some sort of very intense heat. And so we think that that happened during the, uh, the time frame again of around 12,800 to 11,700 years ago. And with this theory and the, uh, I believe it was the, uh, you also showed those two, the, the one that you mentioned earlier, the ones outside of Luxor, the, the two, uh, the two seated figures that were also melted yeah. on one side. I think it was the back side showed that it was, it was hit with something and the front side was just fine. Um, I think that's incredible. But not only that, you're talking about 12,000 years ago. Uh, this would put these structures there, which is almost, what, twice the amount that the mainstream archaeologists say that these structures, that their their age? Is that correct? Because you're saying yeah, dynastic. Yeah, basically, yeah, the, the, the basic um, theory is that civilization began somewhere around 6,000 years ago. So in Sumeria, um, in parts of India and China, uh, the, before that, it, it was all basically hunter-gatherers. But what we're seeing now, and the site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe, which has been now carbon dated at around 11,500 years ago, which was a great shock to academia, um, that, that indicates that um, what we call civilization was actually a renaissance, that there were very advanced cultures uh, more than 12,000 years ago, that this series of cataclysms happened, that the populations were basically wiped out, and then civilization had to reboot itself again. That's the, uh, that's the basic theory, <clears throat> excuse me, theory we're looking at. And what you're referring to again are the two seated figures um, of the, which are the Colossi of Memnon, and that's uh, very clear evidence of intense heat striking. Actually, the eastern, or the, the fronts of them, which face east, but also off by 23, about 23 degrees, and then the sides of them are partially damaged, and then the backs of them are intense, so that tells us automatically 
that some sort of very intense heat came probably at sunrise. It could have been uh, plasma from the sun and struck the front surfaces, blowing the faces off. And that's why the one on the, the right-hand side was much more heavily damaged and was repaired during Roman times. The one on the left, they, they didn't get around to fixing. And it, uh, it gives us a clear indication of very catastrophic damage to an object, again, that weighs 720 tons and had to be moved 400 miles from the quarry in Cairo. 720 tons. I don't think people can really comprehend that number. That's, you know, that's millions of, uh, or is that millions of pounds? Uh, close to it, right? Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, so uh, you, you spoke about the Ramesseum. What do you think, and, and there's, I believe it's there, correct me again, correct me if I'm wrong, the hieroglyphs that depict uh, helicopters, boats, um, well, something that looks like a spaceship. What do you think about that? Do you think those are fake, how they, they say? Because that's the only spot that they find them in. Um, what well, are your thoughts well, on that? Yeah, it, well, it is the only place you find them. And uh, again, it's, it, it's, of course, good to go on location and, and see them. And to me, one looks like a submarine. One looks like a helicopter. Um, and uh, that's what I see. So... The, the, the common idea is that actually it's multiple layers of, uh, of carving into the stone by different pharaohs over the course of time. But the, the probability of coming up with those shapes randomly <laughs> by adding yeah. more hieroglyphs on top. I mean, every time I've been there seven times, every time I, I look at them, I see those, you know, what look like modern um you know, machines of some kind. And other people go, no, 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 no. It's simply inscription on top of inscription. It's like, well, I don't see that. Yeah. Um, another point, it, yeah. Well, and, uh, another point is, again, at the Ramesseum, we have the remains of what was once a 1,000-ton sculpture of a human <clears throat> made of one piece of stone. It's all blown to pieces now. The feet are, you know, the feet are off in one place. Chunks of it are off somewhere else. The main head and the t- torso are, are lying on its side and on, on the back side of that again we see heat scorching but we also see really deeply carved hieroglyphics that when you put your fingers in and and uh, move down and around the the carved in shape that appears to have had to to have been done by some kind of powered router of some kind and so what that you know it's going to sound weird but what that indicates is that even the hieroglyphic system was not invented by the dynastic people but was an inheritance from a much older civilization that invented a symbolic language that was likely far more complicated than uh, the interpretations by the dynastic people because um, as well as I was saying about the 30,000 to 40,000 turned bowls and plates that were found at Saqqara along with the schist discs um, any hieroglyphics carved onto the those surfaces are very simplistic and crude as compared to the manufacturing process that made those objects in the first place. So that, again, shows a, an inheritance of ancient, very sophisticated objects that were then etched. You know, the surfaces were etched in by the dynastic people. It's like a recycling of much older objects. Wow. And, and we see this a lot in different 
Because I don't think, also, I don't think people realize how many of these ancient sites there are around the world, and especially you who have actually gone around the world and seen all these different sites. Uh, you see that a lot, don't you? That you see that the, the original megalithic structures and then the crude, uh, poor craftsmanship, primitive, uh, you know, stones or blocks or, or mortar that, that they put at the top of it, you know, the mud brick. Um, especially in, in uh, one of the other places that interests me a lot is Machu Picchu. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's amazing, um, you know, what these people could do. And, and again, I, I talk to my fiance about it all the time. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, t- I'm watching your videos. I'm telling her about, Hey, I got this guy to talk on. I, and, and, and again, it interests me so much because how did these people accomplish this? It's amazing. Um, out of all the places that you've been to, which is your favorite and why? Well, I, I can't say I have a favorite because that would, um, <laughs> you know, can't, can't have one that's like can't um, have that favorite most child. special, but no, you can't have a favorite child. But, you know, some, I would say um, if you were to give me, say, four places to to go to, one would be Pumapunku and Tiwanaku uh, in Bolivia, which is a very enigmatic ancient site. Um, another one would be the Serapium at Saqqara, where we find, again, these giant 100-ton boxes. Uh, another one would be Petra in Jordan. And another one would be Baalbek in Lebanon. Those are probably four of my, of my favorite um, locations that are, are completely misunderstood and repeated trips to them are important because every time you go, you always find another piece of the puzzle. So it's, it's not that we'll never know. It's a question of going up a staircase that goes up a very long way and you're only part way there. And that's a good thing. You, you don't want to be able to unlock these things too fast. But over the course of time, and since there's so many people researching these subjects now, um, you know, the, the more people visit, the more people that come on tour with us, the more we're able to slowly unravel these ancient enigmas. How do you think it would change the world if, if, if there was some way, and again, who knows if there's a way, who knows if the government has some sort of time machine and they know what went down back then and that's why they don't want us to know the truth. How do you think it would change everything as far as, uh, as, far as we see uh, life? And, you know, from uh, with the evidence aside from a philosophical point of view, how do you think it would it would change our way of thinking, uh, change religion and change life as we know it? Do you think it would have an impact that we actually found out what was going on back then and what these people knew? Um, do you think that would change the world at all? Yeah, I, because I think it would make us humble because we're taught that, um, you know, that we're the top of the of the food chain. We're the most sophisticated people who have ever existed, that we went from cavemen and slowly developed, uh, you know, fire and then simple technology. And now we have very complex technology to realize the fact that there were civilizations that existed that were far more complex and sophisticated than us would put us in our place. And that's the that's a, a very humbling thing. And I think that's quite important for us to realize. It also makes history far more fascinating. If you say that Machu Picchu is probably 12,000 plus years old, and it was found by the Inca 
and then the Inca decided to build a city around a megalithic core, it makes the story far more fascinating than that the Inca simply, you know, decided to go into the high jungle of Peru and, and you know, build a, a city there and then abandon it at the time of the Spanish conquest. It, uh, the same thing with Egypt and all these other places. And uh, finding evidence of machining technology like Petra in Jordan, which is a very, very complicated, huge site. It's about eight miles long. And we see three different uh, types of machining technology that was involved there. The standard stories that some Arabic people called the Nabataeans constructed the whole complex about 2,000 years ago doesn't make any sense because it's, it's just too big. They clearly found it, and then they occupied the site. That's, the, that's kind of the standard theme. These things have been sitting there for thousands upon thousands of years. Something happened to the original inhabitants that was uh, cataclysmic in nature. Then they're rediscovered and reutilized, usually for a different purpose. Yes, uh, Petra is another one of those interesting places, and Baalbek. Uh, I think that place is amazing. Uh, just the sheer size of some of those stones, and and again, you know, people would rather watch uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians than than look into this type of thing, and that's that's where that's where you know that's where again we're conditioned, and and some people just simply don't care. Uh, but I, I feel it is important that we learn where we came from, and and what do you have to say about all these? Uh, um, and it's undeniable, all these similarities uh, between these sites. Uh, do you, how do you feel about the Anunnaki? Do you have any uh, any feelings towards that that we that we came from? And that's what people like to think that we came from an extraterrestrial uh, civilization from way back then, and that they handed this knowledge down to us. And that's why there's all these resemblances of different, not only sites and you know we have different types of pyramids around the world but uh depictions of the of saint of the same you know uh quetzalcoatl the, the same person uh in in gobeki tepe the the i think pillar 43 that shows the, the the little bag that you can find uh depictions of quetzalcoatl with um that pine cone that you see all these different religions with the same depictions of of these figures whoever they were what are your thoughts on that and I, and I again i know you're a guy of of factual evidence but what are your thoughts towards that towards that we came from uh, an ancient extraterrestrial civilization well i'm i'm very much open to it because um my again my background is in science but also my major was in biology, so I had Darwinian evolution, uh, you know, shoved into my head on, on a daily basis. And looking at, at so-called evolution, there's no actual evidence, as far as I can tell, that we uh, descend from apes and then went through different stages of human to become us. There's no, I can't see any obvious evidence of there being um, evolutionary change within the, the, the human being from, from apes to us. Um, most of that is, is speculation. So I'm, I'm open to the idea that we were seeded in the very distant past from, from somewhere else. And that's why we're such a, 
a confused species as well and, and so destructive. We don't seem to actually fit in with the planet that well. So I'm, I'm definitely open to it. And you have you, you do have all of these different cultures that talk about ancient teachers of, of a very sophisticated knowledge that come and teach arts and sciences to relatively primitive people. You find that in South America. You find that in all sorts of places. I haven't really gotten into the Anunnaki stuff yet. I'm kind of waiting for that. I haven't traveled too much in, in the Middle East yet, and that would be something that I would... Uh, I'm planning on doing in in the uh, in the future, but Anunnaki more or less means those who came from the heavens and you know mated with those of the earth, you know. And so that's that's an aspect that I want to look at. There's been too much um, again speculation done by too many people about that subject, as far as I can tell. So that's something that I'm looking forward to. You, you hear and it's a crazy story. You know, they take these uh, cuneiform tablets and they translate them. It's like I've read the cuneiform tablets and I got nowhere near what these people say that they read from them. Um, and I know you talk about uh, Pumapunku and, and on there, I, I believe it's there. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's a statue of Quatacoto with, with a beard. And you say that the, the, there's something, uh, those people in that part of the world, they can't, they don't grow beards or... I was watching it on your lecture, I believe, of uh, Pumapunku. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, it's actually uh, Viracocha or, or oh, Viracocha. Uh, Viracocha. Yeah. Yeah, who, who probably was the same as Quetzalcoatl and also Kukul Khan. I mm -hmm. actually wrote a book about that uh, in terms of this, again, this great teacher coming. And so I... I, I um, the basic story of Viracocha is that he, he comes from a distant land and he arrives in uh, what is now called Bolivia and Peru. And he, he's a great teacher and he travels to the northwest. And then uh, he has a number of followers that come with him. It was probably the, the, the Viracochana, the Viracochana, probably wasn't just one teacher. And then they, they basically go to the northwest, to the coast of Peru and Bolivia border, and then disappear, saying that they will return one day. But the interesting thing is if you look on a, on a map and follow the path, then that takes you straight into the area where Kukul Khan and Quetzalcoatl existed. So it's, it's quite wow. likely that this, this group of ancient teachers were the same. It's just that they... Um, they, you know, they went in, into different lands and were were named in the local language or dialect by the people that they discovered. Yeah, and that's and, that's... and yes, they are. Yeah, they they are portrayed as as, as being tall, probably light skin, very foreign to the local people, uh, had uh, full beards, and that yeah, that is not a, a characteristic of um, Amerindian people. And it was thousands how, of years. Well, yeah, the, the, the unfortunate thing about oral tradition is that they, they don't give you a specific timeline. They simply say in the very distant past, these teachers came and, and taught us um, the arts of agriculture, metallurgy and things like that. And But this was uh, hundreds, of, I think, hundreds of years before they came from Spain over. So, you know, people with those types of characteristics, they wouldn't have been in the area. And that's what's interesting no, about no, it. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So speaking of people uh, in the area, speaking about the Anunnaki, um, 
there's talks in the Bible of the Nephilim, these giants, people with, uh, you know, the Anunnaki, people with all elongated skulls. I know you uh, study, uh, uh, you have studied some elongated skulls. Uh, what have your studies, uh, the evidence, what has it shown in regards to those? I know you just recently got some uh, DNA tested. What were the results of that? And, mm -hmm. and what do you think, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about it being a, a birth defect, you know, again, to contradict that argument that it might not be a uh, homo sapien, that it might have uh, traces of other DNA. And what I find interesting about it is that some of the, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, you found DNA that's, uh, that's related to another part of the world, you know, how those people came from that part of the world over to where it's at. But the people talk about that they've always been there. Uh, what are your findings mm -hmm. with those elongated skulls? Well, it's a very complex, ongoing subject. But yeah, the basic story is that you you have different cultures around the world that um, where the nobility would alter the shape of their newborn babies to have a elongated uh, shape, and the reasoning behind that was to distinguish the nobility from the common people. And, uh, of course, that would have to have been based on observance of someone who, obviously, who looked like that. But, again, academia doesn't want to touch that subject. They say it's all cranial deformation, it's all head binding, and the most intriguing examples are here on the coast of Peru amongst uh, what we call the Paracas people. They had the largest elongated skulls of anyone in the world, and um, the oldest ones are very natural in shape and over the course of time these people mated with normal looking people and so over the generations the skulls began to to change in shape uh, over time they would start to look more and more normal so that's when head binding would begin to maintain the different um, the distinction between the nobility and the, and the common people and so no one had ever done DNA testing of them, and we did uh, one major study of 18 different skulls, and uh, the expected results, of course, were going to be that they were Native American people, probably of the maternal haplogroup B, and of the 18 skulls that we studied, only two turned out to be haplogroup B, and the other ones were um, haplogroups such as U2, U2E1, HK, are um, and so that confused me for about a month because when you have so many different haplogroups showing up and these people are all supposed to be from the same source you have to look at uh, where the commonality is and the commonality is actually in and around the Black Sea area in Eurasia and when you look up on the internet elongated skulls of, uh, of Russia or Eurasia or the Black Sea, you see that the other largest elongated skulls in the world are located there, and that's the commonality point of these haplogroups. So we um, did this study with a, a very leading Peruvian archaeologist who uh, basically disavowed the whole results. He said that obviously the samples were contaminated, which they weren't. Uh, he wouldn't allow any more study of the or, or testing of the skulls from the museums in Peru so that's how academia tries to shut this stuff down wow and so what we're doing now is uh, what we're doing now is is we're studying uh, 
skulls in private collections. And I've been I've been able to figure out that the largest elongated skulls in the in the world are only located in one uh, location, and that's a, about a 20 acre area, about a half hour drive from where I'm talking to you right now. So it's it's an ongoing thing. It's just uh, that's a classic example of academia ignoring or trying to suppress uh, scientific evidence. Yeah, especially when there's money involved, and and I know you talked about it before. Everybody has a certain agenda, and just like anything else, uh, call it a conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, but it's true. And when it doesn't fit their agenda, uh, you know, they're gonna try and, and erase it. It's almost like 1984 George Orwell when they they go back in time and they correct everything that they've said. Uh, they said something in the present time. They go back and and they correct. You know, they they were wrong about it in the past. So whenever they're questioned about it, it's like, no, no, no. We were right about it this whole time. It's like, no, you didn't. You go back and you check and they corrected it. So um, it's it's very interesting. And again, I know you it's it's awesome that you go around the whole world and and visit these sites and study these things. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. And I feel we need more people like you in this world who look at the cold hard facts and, and you know, don't speculate as much and, and come up with other narratives, um, you know, as far as uh, where, what all these things mean. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to, we're coming up on the hour, I don't know if you want to uh, elaborate on anything else, uh, but I feel that people uh, well, should... Well, Mm-hmm. Well, the, the great thing is that the, the future does look bright because the more that you look on YouTube, the more channels are, are popping up of, of people who are doing more or less the same stuff that I'm doing. To some degree, I've been their influence or, you know, people like Graham Hancock has been their influence. But as time goes on, more and more people are, are looking at this and it's all independent research that is making the discoveries. It's not being done through academia anymore. That was always the paradigm that, well, it has to be a PhD in archaeology who is the reference and has to be the one digging in the field. Um, It's independent people going to these locations. And um, that's the wonderful thing, as I said before about Egypt, is as time goes on, ancient sites that have been prohibited to the public are now being opened up. And so by being able to film in these locations and put videos um, on the internet, then it's uh, able to influence more and more people as time goes on, which is great. And yeah, and, that, and that's the thing about uh, technology, and and this is what amazes me that how did these people know all of this? Because right now, us here in the 21st century, sitting here today, I have a supercomputer with me at all times. You know, I open up my phone, I look up whatever question I want answered, and it's there. And 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 mere in milliseconds, it's I have a result, whatever I want to to find out about. And it's like you look back and you go, how did these people? They didn't have that. There was no internet. There was no, there was no nothing. It's like what did they know that maybe perhaps we don't know, or what what had they tapped into that we haven't been able to tap into? And it, it's it's really amazing. Um, but on that note. Uh, I think people should really check out your your stuff online, read your books, watch your lectures, and just really go into the rabbit hole of of, of what this is, and uh, you know interpret it for for themselves because uh, 
you know, everything's art. You interpret everything the way you want to interpret it. Uh, you know, how they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder and, and, you know, not to be led by whatever you're hearing or whatever you're seeing from one organization or the other ones that, that are considered mainstream and just really look into it in depth. Um, but again, I want to thank you for your time. Brian, I know you're a busy guy traveling around the world. Uh, is there anything in the works? Are you going anywhere exciting uh, come in these upcoming months? Yeah, well, um, again, actually, my eighth trip to Egypt will be in March. And right after that, we're going to Israel because there's some um, evidence of megalithic work there. Uh, then uh, late May, early June, I'm going to what's called Contact in the Desert, which is a giant conference in California. <clears throat> and then June, August and November, we have uh, major tours here in Peru and Bolivia. And other stuff will pop up as time goes on. That's awesome. I'll be watching your YouTube channel. And um, who knows, I might take a, a, a tour to Egypt uh, with you. Uh, one of these years um, and head over there and really, you know, take in all that, the amazing structures that are over there. I, again, it just blows my mind. But with that said, thank you for your time, Brian. I really appreciate it. And uh, I know you gave your information at the beginning. People can check you out, uh, check out your work and, and just really look into it and, and interpret it for themselves. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Well, there you have it. Uh, thank you for sticking around this long. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I was looking forward to it all week. Follow us on social media at the Juan on Juan podcast. Uh, shoot me an email if you have anything interesting to talk about, anything you want to hear on the show, uh, any topics. Uh, shoot me an email, the Juan on Juan podcast at gmail.com. And thank you for the support. Until next time, everyone.